Hi, writers. Welcome to our new episode on writing fiction, both novels and short stories. This is Jim Thayer. I try not to be too self-promotional in these episodes. The podcast is about writing, not selling. But I'm delighted to announce that my new novel is now available at Amazon. The title is Fagin and Miss Havisham. Right now it's available as an ebook for Kindle and other readers, and soon it'll be available in print at Amazon and other sellers, and also soon in audio format. The publisher is Creative Texts, an independent publisher and a good one. In Charles Dickens's novel Great Expectations, Miss Havisham was left at the altar on her wedding day many years ago, and she was jilted. It's driven her crazy over the years, and she's one of Dickens's legendary creations. In my novel, Fagin and Miss Havisham, it's, it's ten years before the time of Charles Dickens's novels. It's earlier in Miss Havisham's life when she isn't quite so crazy, and she's bent on revenge against the swindler who left her at the altar on her wedding day in Great Expectations. Characters in my new novel are from other Dickens's novels, Fagin from Oliver Twist, Inspector Bucket from Bleak House, Murdstone Stone from David Copperfield, and others. I mix these famous Dickens characters together in their youths to find out what happens. How did they end up as they did? What happened to them in their prior lives? Fagin and Miss Havisham, uh, Miss Havisham is a story of that. Uh, in these episodes, I often make suggestions about writing techniques. You, my friends, may have wondered, is Jim all hat and no cattle? He can talk, but can he write? Please consider getting a copy of Fagin and Miss Havisham and find out. I received a terrific question from Judy in Tennessee. She wrote, I would love a list about ways to invoke emotion and or strong feelings when writing. So that's our topic today, generating emotions in our story for our character and, and so for the reader. It's an important subject. A main reason people read a novel is that it generates emotions for them. Most of us in our real lives uh, go through a week without being swept up in an emotion. And for many emotions, that's a good thing. Fear, hatred, revulsion, grief, shock. I don't know about you, but I can do without these. And some of our daily planning in our real lives is designed to avoid these things. Other emotions are usually welcome. Uh, love, gratitude, admiration, respect, awe, wonder, joy, relief. Isn't it wonderful to be swept up in these emotions? They happen too rarely in our real lives. But in fiction, we writers can create these emotions, the good and the bad ones, for our readers. And that's a main reason readers read novels. So emotions in our writing should be a big ingredient in the novel or story we're writing. We should try to generate emotions for our readers. I'd like to talk about how we can prompt emotions in our readers, some things to do and some to avoid. 
First, let me read the most emotional scene I've ever come across in my fiction reading. Uh, it's from Larry McMurtry's Terms of, en- of Endearment. Two little boys, Tommy and Teddy, are losing their mother, who is dying of cancer. Everyone is trying to remain strong, and they all have their own way of doing it. Uh, still, we readers feel their intense sadness. Here is Larry McMurtry. Teddy had meant to be reserved, but he couldn't manage. His feelings rushed up and became words. Oh, I really don't want you to die, he said. He had a husky little voice. I want you to come home. Tommy said nothing. Well, both of you better make some friends, Emma said. I'm sorry about this, but I can't help it. I can't talk to you much longer either, or I'll get too upset. Fortunately, we had 10 or 12 years, and we did a lot of talking, and that's more than a lot of people get. Make some friends and be good to them. Don't be afraid of girls either. We're not afraid of girls, Tommy said. What makes you think that? You might get to be later, Emma said. I doubt it, Tommy said, very tense. When they came to hug her, Teddy fell apart, and Tommy remained stiff. Tommy, be sweet, Emma said. Be sweet, please. Don't keep pretending you you dislike me. That's silly. I like you, Tommy said, shrugging tightly. I know that, but for the last year or two, you've been pretending you hate me, Emma said. I know I love you more than anybody in the world except your brother and sister, and I'm not going to be around long enough to change my mind about you, but you are going to live a long time. And in a year or two, when I'm not around to irritate you, and you're going to change your mind. And remember that I read you a lot of stories and made you a lot of milkshakes and allowed you to goof off a lot when I could have been forcing you to mow the lawn. Both boys looked away, shocked that their mother's voice was so weak. In other words, you're going to remember that you love me, Emma said. I imagine you'll wish you could tell me you've changed your mind, but you won't be able to. So I'm telling you now, I already know you love me, just so you won't be in doubt about that later, okay? Okay, Tommy said quickly, a little gratefully. In this scene, Mom is confessing her son's love for her because he can't do it. Huge love and huge sorrow in the same scene. This is an incredibly sad scene. Emotions make this scene, and it makes this novel. It's wonderful writing by Larry McMurtry. This scene can hardly be read dry-eyed. Here are some thoughts, a list, about how to create emotions in our characters and our readers. Here's a first thought, and it's an easy one. Have emotions in your story. Readers want characters who show their emotions when the situation calls for it, and we writers should create situations that call for it. Our first technique, have emotions in our story. Generate them for the reader. A second technique, our 
readers will be most heavily invested in our main character, our protagonist. Most of the time in our plotting, uh, the emotions we writers try to create should regard our main character. Readers care less about secondary characters and things that happen to them, and their emotions won't matter as much to readers. So we should focus on our main character. If our main character is joyous, readers will be joyous for her. If, if she's frightened, uh, the reader will be frightened for her. We, we root for the protagonist, and we're happy or sad, we're in love, or we're afraid for her. Uh, not so much for lesser characters. Here's a, a third technique. Have a likable main character. You've heard this from me before. Uh, a main ingredient of our protagonist is that he or she be likable, someone the reader wants to spend time with and root for. Uh, the reader will invest in a likable character, and the things that happen to her will also happen metaphorically to the reader. If the reader likes the main character, things that happen to her affect the reader. The reader will share emotions with a character the reader likes. A fourth idea. How should we create emotions? Here's how. Have your character desperately want something, and you, the writer, either gives it to her or keeps her from getting it. That's how emotions are created in real life, and it's how they are created in fiction. Uh, she wants love, freedom, safety, revenge. She wants a fortune. She wants her health or one of many other things people want. If we, the writer, give the character what she wants, the emotions the reader will see in the character are love or relief, gratitude, satisfaction or pride, elation, and some others. And if we, the writer, deny her what she wants, the emotions of our character and so our reader will be grief or fear, uh, the need for revenge, and there are others. The key here is that the more desperately our character wants something, the greater her, her emotion will be and the more the reader will believe in and savor the emotion when she gets what she wants or is denied it. Big desire leads to big emotions when they are satisfied or denied in fiction. That's the reason, that's a reason, your scene of large emotions should probably be later in the, in the novel when the reader knows and likes your character and knows and likes her desires. They're clear to the reader and the obstacles to those desires are also clear. Here's a, f a fifth thought. Abstractions won't create emotions. Uh, abstract, uh, philosophical, uh, ideological elements in our story won't create big emotions in our readers. Uh, a general love of humanity, uh, distaste for socialism or a love of socialism, an attraction to art, a uh, profound need to provide to the poor, pacifism or militarism, uh, a love of a profession or a job. These emotions, and there are many, many others, are abstract and philosophical, and as important as they might be to the world in general and to us personally, they usually 
won't generate emotions in a reader, not the powerful emotions we writers want to create. Readers will get much more involved down at the street level of emotions. Love for a person, hatred of a person, undying gratitude to a person, fear of a person. Uh, These emotions, human to human, Uh, will be the heart of a story. They'll grab the reader. A sixth technique, we don't always have to be direct when setting out the emotion. A direct emotion is, I love you, he said. I love you too, she replied. That's direct. That's okay once in a while, I suppose. But love and other emotions are more interesting uh, to the reader when shown in a in a less direct way. Here's an example. I wish I had a car, Lewis said, pushing the 25-pound weight onto the bar. The weight room was full with people in line for the machines and free weights. I drive my mom's. Amy was lying on the bench, uh, on the press bench, her hands on the bar. I have to empty the front seat of real estate brochures every time. Uh, That's what she does. I'd go to more movies if I had a car. I haven't even seen Brad Pitt's new movie. Mom lets me drive it mostly on weekend. Small grunts accompanied Amy's words as she pumped the bar up and down. Sometimes I drive a friend or two around doing things. Lewis's gaze was on the bar as he did his curls. And the last movie I went to, I was with Tim Ross, and and you know Tim's okay, but he's a jerk in a movie, talking all the time and snickering at the wrong places. The bar rose and fell, and he inhaled sharply with the effort. He carefully avoided looking at Amy. I can remember the last time, I can't remember the last time I went to a movie with somebody who, 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 I don't know. Uh, Notice in this uh, partial scene that Love is being generated and is being revealed here, but the topic isn't love. Uh, The writer, who you are at the moment listening to, generates the emotions for the characters and the readers obliquely, but the reader knows what's going on and it works. A seventh idea about generating emotions, dialogue is a strong way to do so. Uh, Mentioned earlier is that dialogue, a character's talk, is a good way to reveal things about the character, as the character is giving evidence right from his own mouth. Uh, That principle applies to emotions. Uh, How many times do we hear, uh, I love you, in our real lives? Probably not as often as we'd like, and in fiction, this dialogue can be powerful. Uh, In The White Company, Arthur Conan Doyle says, You are my heart, my life, my one and only thought. How's that for dialogue? Or, or how's this one about love? It's from Edith Wharton's The Age of Innocence. Each time you happen to me all over again. Or how about dialogue showing uh, friendship and respect? Uh, this is from uh, E.B. White's Charlotte's Web. Why did you do all this for me, he asked. I don't deserve it. I've never done anything for you. You have been my friend, replied Charlotte. That in itself is a tremendous thing.
let's take a quick break. I'm Michael Severs, the writer, producer, and creator of The Silver King's War, a podcast series about my father's Second World War as a B-26 bombardier. Stanley L. Silverfield, a first lieutenant in the United States Army Air Corps from Birmingham, Alabama, rode in the nose, the greenhouse of the famed Martin Marauder. You can find The Silver King's War wherever you listen to podcasts. Hope is a strong emotion in fiction. Uh, Remember uh, Scarlett O'Hara in Margaret Mitchell's Gone with the Wind? Tomorrow, I'll think of some way to get him back. After all, tomorrow is another day. Or optimism. Dialogue can reveal a character's optimism. Here's uh, Anne in Anne of Green Gables by L.M. Montgomery. Isn't it nice to think that tomorrow is a new day with no mistakes in it yet. Uh, That's lovely. Dialogue is right in front of the reader, and it's a strong way to show our character's emotion to the reader. Here's an eighth idea. We should focus on the cause of the emotion, not so much on the emotional reaction. You've heard me say before that when a character cries, the reader won't have to. A character uh, weeping releases sadness from the page when we writers want to keep it bottled up right in front of the reader. The technique is to build up the reason for the emotion, build up the situation, instead of focusing on the character's reaction. Notice in that wonderful scene I read a moment ago from Larry McMurtry's Terms of Endearment, it's powerful and emotional. Uh, It's of desperate sadness and love, but no one is weeping. This technique works for almost all emotions. Here's an example of it. Uh, where the situation is built up, built up, but the character's reaction is is muted. Uh, it's the emotion of fear. She stood near the cliff, the bridge out in front of her. The bridge's side ropes were frayed, and the deck boards looked rotted, mossy with soft edges. The anchorage on her side was a gnarly pine tree that might have been two hundred years old and was bent like an old man. The cavern was a hundred yards across, and the canyon floor must have been a hundred yards below. The stream running through it bubbled and hissed. Wind swept at her, as if wanting to push her toward the canyon's lip. She placed a hand on one of the bridge's side ropes, then yanked it back. She half-stepped back from the rock face and gripped her her hands together. Uh, Here the writer has painted a picture of a frightening place. Uh, a steep canyon with a frayed rope bridge that she has to cross. Uh, The situation's been built up. There's little need to write a lot about her reaction. The reader gets it. Uh, A new writer, uh, afraid the reader might not understand she's afraid, might continue the scene with something like this. Her hands trembled and she pushed herself back against a tree. She inhaled in huge gulps and sank down to the ground. She tried to pull out her cell phone, but her hands were trembling so much she couldn't get her fingers into the pocket. She pounded the ground with a fist and said to herself, It's too much. I'm not going out on that bridge. This is a. These additional sentences probably weakened the scene. 
This is a powerful technique that works almost all the time. Build the case for the emotion. Set out, set out why the character should feel sadness or joy or revulsion or wonder, uh, should feel relief or gratitude or, or shame. Give the facts. But then don't go on at length regarding the character's emotional reaction. If the character whoops with joy, the reader won't have to. Here's a ninth thought. In our emotional scenes, we should have little or no interior monologue. Interior monologue is a character's thoughts. It's usually the least interesting element of a scene. Readers find action and dialogue and description more interesting than, uh, than reading a character's thoughts. E emotion is a function of the brain, of the mind, isn't it? Uh, emotion resides in the brain. Yet having the reader visit the character's mind is a weak presentation of emotion. Here's an example of interior monologue ab about emotion, the emotion of love. Here is the character's interior monologue. Annie was sure she was in love with Ben, and she tried to show him, in one little way or another, not too obvious, not right in his face, but little things. She didn't know if he was picking up on him. She couldn't read him. Maybe there was, maybe that was one of his attractions. He didn't advertise his thoughts. He kept to himself most of the time. She liked that. She liked his reserve. Those are Annie's thoughts. And this is an important moment in our love story, but it's not too interesting presented as, as done here inside Annie's mind. Here is how these same emotions can be shown to the reader with action and dialogue and description without entering Annie's mind. The hallway was crowded, students rushing along like a river. She squeezed between two guys going her same direction. One of them said, hey, watch it. But she rushed ahead. As she neared Ben, she slowed and looked down the hallway, looking everywhere but at him. Then she turned toward him, as if seeing him for the first time. You headed to journalism? Annie asked. He looked at her and nodded. Me too. Where's Allison? She usually's holding your hand on this walk to class, isn't she? She dumped me or I dumped her, Ben said. I can't figure out which. Probably the former. He laughed under his breath. Yeah, probably. Side by side, they were swept along in the flow of students. Ben said all she ever wanted to talk about was the Broncos. Broncos this and Broncos that. Mile high this and mile high that. John Elway is God. I was bored to death. Broncos, a football team? This time he turned his head to look at her. You don't know sports? She smiled. Full contact Burmese kickboxing is my jam. He laughed. I've always suspected that about you. You don't look like you've got the arms for it, but it's likely your deadly personality. See what's happening in this scene? She's letting him know how she feels subtly and skillfully and with humor, and he's become aware of her. Uh, maybe he will return her feelings at some point. And this, with his action and dialogue, is so much more interesting a display of emotion than the interior monologue I read earlier. Here's a tenth thought, and the last one about creating emotions for our characters and so for our readers. We should use contrast when writing about emotions. 
Yeah, I'm a dog with a bone about contrast, but it's such an important tool for us writers. Your emotional scene will be more emotional for the reader if it is preceded and followed by scenes of little or no emotion in your character. An action scene might be followed by a a scene of love which will make the love scene more vivid to the reader. Uh, you certainly, in, in most circumstances, uh, don't want two emotional scenes, say love scenes, in a row. Uh, contrast will make your emotional scenes more riveting for the reader. So those are some techniques for writing emotions in our stories. Readers want emotions. They are a big payoff for the reader. So we writers should offer the reader those emotions. My cat Jack is a piece of work. Every morning when I sit at my laptop, uh, my laptop is in front of me on a desk. The first thing I do in the morning is to read a couple of newspapers online. Jack sits to my right on the desk, right up against the laptop. After some minutes, he scoots closer to the laptop so he can put his paws on it. Uh, So I move the laptop a little to my left out of his reach. After a few more minutes, he scoots again toward the laptop, so I shift it a little more. This goes on a half a dozen times as as if he's aiming to put his paws on the touchpad. After a while of scooting, he is directly under my nose, and my laptop is off to the left, fairly out of reach. And that's how Jack and I spend some of the morning. Uh, I'm not complaining. In, In the gamut of rural troubles, this is a a small thing. It's not like having smallpox. Still, as I've mentioned before, Jack is an operator, and he's figured me out down to the DNA. I just finished Booth Tarkington's novel, The Magnificent Ambersons, which won the Pulitzer Prize in 1918. I enjoyed every page of it. Booth Tarkington was a wonderful writer, a, a sharp, sharp observer of the human condition. The novel's a big soap opera about a family living in a Midwest city uh, based on Indianapolis, I read. And the family is on the classic trajectory following the old axiom about newly wealthy families, shirt sleeves to shirt sleeves in three generations. But there was something odd about the story. The main character, the, the story's protagonist, Georgie Amberson Menafor, is intensely unlikable when the reader meets him when he's nine years old, and he remains unlikable through 99% of the novel, which ends uh, when he's in his mid-twenties. Georgie is entirely self-centered. His family is wealthy, and he takes for granted the superiority of his family, calling people who work for a living riffraff. Other than to be an Amberson, he is entirely ambitionless. When asked by a young lady what he wants to do in life, what profession or business he might attempt, Georgie replies, he doesn't want to do anything. He just wants to be. His grandfather gives him money, and that's how he lives. He, he's rude, uncaring, unprincipled, and whose charm, he's handsome, is as thin as gold plating. The reader uh, and much of the townspeople actively root against him. The reader waits for his downfall or his 
redemption and waits and waits while Georgie does one crummy thing after another. The last few pages of the novel offer some promise of redemption. It's not really clear. You've heard me say that our main character in the novel we are writing should be likable. That seems to be, to me, a minimum for a fictional protagonist. Maybe not lovable. Maybe he can be prickly, but the reader grows to like the character, which is a main reason we read, to be around an interesting and likable character. Not so in Tarkington's novel, A Magnificent Ambersons. The the reader actively dislikes the main character and waits for his well-deserved downfall. But I really enjoyed the novel. So there's an example of our rule of exceptions. For every rule, there's an exception. Our technique that we talked about earlier in earlier episodes and in this episode, and I think it's a solid one, is to make our protagonist likable. That technique has an exception, and Booth Tarkington's novel is one of them. We've come to the end of this episode. If you'd like to send me an email, my address is jimthayerseattle at gmail.com. Until next time, this is Jim Thayer. Please keep tapping those keys.